Welcome, everybody, to the London School of Economics. Welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy. And welcome to tonight's public talk on exploitation. So exploitation is recently having a little bit of a comeback. Right? It played an important role in Marxist theory. It's been relegated to the backbenches for a time. Other concepts took over, justice, for example. But there's recently a revival taking place. And it's my pleasure to introduce two of the protagonists in staging that revival, um, Hillel Steiner and Nicholas Rosales. Hillel Steiner is a professor emeritus by now, I think, at the University of Manchester, fellow at the British Academy, one of the leading left libertarians, and also the author of one of the most expensive philosophy books on Amazon. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> if you try and buy his essay on rights, um, I wanted to buy it last summer. It was about 100 pounds, and I thought, ah, well. <laughs> I checked again this morning. It's 250 pounds. <laughs> So if you're looking for a good investment opportunity, <laughs> buy Hillel's book, An Essay on Rights. Um, it's also my pleasure to introduce Nicholas Rosales. Uh, he's a trained economist and philosopher from Cambridge and Oxford, and he's currently a lecturer um, at the University of Leiden, from which he's joining us tonight. recently published a paper in Philosophy and Public Affairs um, on exploitation, vulnerability, and domination. The procedure for tonight is we'll uh, hear Nick speak first, um, motivate the enterprise of thinking about exploitation to begin with. We'll then hear from Hillel with his theory of exploitation, his liberal account of exploitation. We'll then hear Nicholas again with his account of exploitation. Then Hillel will have the opportunity to comment on Nicholas's account of exploitation and vice versa. Slightly complicated, but we'll make it. And then we open it up very quickly to the audience to get your questions in and have an exchange between Nicholas and Hillel. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks for joining us to speak. And I'll pass over the microphone to Nicholas to kick us off. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for organizing this wonderful event. Um, so sweatshops, trafficking, prostitution, um, guest workers, uh, all these things have been one of the reasons why, reasons why the, there's been an explosion in interest in, in exploitation in recent years is precisely these phenomena have become ubiquitous and pervasive. Um, and within the context of contemporary political philosophy, there's basically two theories uh, available. There's the liberal one, and then there's everything else. And what you're going to hear today is a presentation of the liberal one and then the presentation of everything else uh, together with an attempt to refute uh, or at least to undermine that theory and bring back exploitation to its proper place, which is uh, Marxist or broadly Marxist political theory. So um, we'll start with Hillel. Uh, then I present my own my own view, and then we continue the exchange like that. Okay. 
Yes, well, I, I too want to thank Gabriel for organizing this uh, event, which um, made me reflect on how I got interested in this topic uh, when I first did, which is about 35 years ago. Um, and what I recall is that I was struck at the time by um, a slightly, well, I don't know, ironic or paradoxical convergence between the claims of uh, free market enthusiasts on the one hand and many Marxists on the other. Um, free market enthusiasts seem to claim that no free market um, transaction could be unjust, nor therefore exploitative, because um, these are voluntarily undertaken transactions from which both parties benefit. Uh, so it just yeah, looks obvious that uh, these things cannot be regarded as in any way unfair. The Marxists claim that in a way converges with that, I thought, was the claim that at least classical political, philo liberal political philosophy, perhaps all liberal political philosophy, just lacks the kind of conceptual apparatus that would be needed to show that free market transactions can, despite being the having the characteristic of being mutually beneficial and voluntarily undertaken, can nonetheless be unjust and unfair. The conceptual apparatus of uh, liberal political philosophy, particularly classical form or libertarian form, consists mainly of these uh, what juridical concepts of uh, rights, liberties, powers, <clears throat> and on the other hand, or as well as people's preference functions. It's not a very sociologically rich set of concepts that uh, at least classical liberal political philosophy deploys. And the Marxist claim is therefore that it's incapable really of understanding or giving an account of, any kind of account of, exploitation. Um, for that kind of account to be given, I think classical Marxists would claim uh, that we need to use something like the classical economist's conception of objective economic value from which market values, market prices, uh, can diverge. Objective value probably in the form of cost of production, <clears throat> which is typically based on or reducible to the costs of labor uh, inputs. Um, and, and the cost of labor inputs are roughly related to uh, subsistence wages of some kind. The model of exploitation that I began to develop 35 years ago, the first installment of it, I guess, or the first go at it was an article in Ethics in 1984, um, tries to combine uh, classical liberal normative premises that conceptually 
impoverished um, set of uh, uh, materials with uh, the neoclassical subjective conception of value. Um, a conception of value which uh, doesn't involve any commitments about preferred conceptions of the good life or anything of that kind. <clears throat> and I, what I wanted to do was to show that even with those very spare conceptual materials, one could still show that some free market exchanges can be unjust in the sense of exploitative, in the sense that they produce what Marx called surplus value, though probably not in the instances that Marx would have picked out. And the simple idea is this, and I'll just outline it and then I'll sit down. We can discuss it further. The, the idea is to think of an auction. An auction is like a market writ small. <clears throat> and the idea is that somebody goes along to sell something at this auction. It could be a chunk of her labor or it could be some commodity of some kind, whatever. And the winning bid at the auction is, say, $100. But somebody would have paid more than that, say $120. The reason they didn't is just, and there can be many ver variations of this reason, say the reason that they didn't pay the $120 was because they were barred from entering the auction. Or they had some of their money stolen on the way to the auction. And as I say, there can be many more variations of essentially the same idea. The idea here is that there is a third party who would have outbid the winner of the auction, but suffered an injustice that prevented him or, or her from doing that, from outbidding the winner. A more recent uh, variation on this that uh, some of my colleagues, I think, rightly suggested to me is that we could imagine that the person who is selling whatever is being sold at the auction herself undergoes some kind of prior injustice that lowers what we'll broadly call, what economists call, her endowment. And in lowering her endowment, her bundle of resources, her property, her wealth, in lowering that, it causes her reservation price for whatever it is that she's selling to drop. So again, the basic idea, whether regardless of who's, in, who's suffering the injustice, the basic idea is that there is an injustice, a violation of rights that makes someone poorer, and it's by virtue of that impoverishing injustice that the person who is selling sells for less than they would have sold and are thereby, or is thereby, exploited. I think that's all I'll say at this, at this point. In my opinion, if we are to understand exploitation, uh, we should look neither at right 
nor a distributive injustice. The key to understanding exploitation, in my opinion, is understanding vulnerability and its connections with power. So vulnerability is usually understood as a sort of bilateral relation or a two-place relation, as philosophers sometimes say. So it's conceived as a relationship between me and the rock that's standing, that's sitting over my head. Or if you like, between me and the rock that's about to fall on my head and cause uh, a harm to me. So vulnerability is conceived in terms of as a relationship between me and the rock. But in sufficiently developed social contexts, the relevant notion of vulnerability, which I'm tentatively going to call social vulnerability, is a three-place relation. It's a relation between me, the rock, and Hillel, who, let's assume, has his finger on a button that can either remove the rock from above my head or remove me from below the rock, thereby rescuing me. In any realistic social setting, the relevant notion of vulnerability is going to be social vulnerability. And social vulnerability, thus defined, is just the obverse of power over. So if Hillel can rescue me, I am vulnerable to Hillel, and in virtue of that vulnerability, Hillel possesses a power over me. And I think the concept of vulnerability that is at play here, and vulnerability as it is used in ordinary language, is capacious enough to hold this expansion of meaning. Now, exploitation in general is about the instrumentalization of that vulnerability. It's about taking advantage of people in virtue of taking advantage of their vulnerable states. Um, and it's not just that. So uh, if you like a more complete definition of vulnerability, uh, A exploits B if and only if A takes advantage of B's vulnerable state in order to enrich himself. Now, if this is a sound definition of exploitation, and if vulnerability is what I've said it is, namely uh, a social three-place relation, then it follows that the, that, uh, the things that get, that get taken advantage of establish or ground uh, a power over me uh, on the part of the exploiter. So if it is true, as I've said, that the relevant form of vulnerability we're interested in when we discuss things like exploitation is social vulnerability, then it follows that exploitation is just a form of domination. Domination is what obtains, roughly, whenever it is rational for people to ingratiate themselves or be servile to other people um, in virtue of a power that these people possess over them. So domination is, is basically what obtains when people optimize by being servile. Take a very simple case, a standard canonical example that we're probably going to be using throughout the discussion tonight. Uh, there's two people, A and B. You know, philosophers aren't very imaginative with their, um, with their names. Um, so A and B, B finds himself in a pit. A comes over and says to B, I'm going to get you out of the pit but in order to do so, you have to pay me a million euros. Or you have to work for me for uh, 10 years for one euro a day, or a pound a day, I'm sorry. Didn't, want, didn't mean to insult Her Majesty. So this offer is exploitative. 
if this isn't exploitative, if this offer isn't exploitative, then none are. But notice here that it is plausible, in fact, um, it is very compelling to think that um, A is exploiting B, and he's capable of doing that. Um, he's exploiting B in virtue of the fact that uh, he dominates B. Now, why is this relevant or, or interesting? The, I, th I think the, 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 the real-world placeholders here, that's rather obvious, uh, are capitalists and workers in the context of uh, a relatively advanced capitalist society. So what happens under a relatively advanced capitalist society is that uh, there's a bunch of people, a class of people, who in virtue of certain structural facts about the economy consistently find themselves in pits namely workers. Workers are, by definition, those people, those members of society who do not own means of production. Means of production are just useful things that can be directly used to produce other useful things. And it is also in virtue of that structural fact, namely that some people do not own means of production and some other people do own, that a certain class in society always finds itself above these people, above, over the pit, and can systematically take advantage of the people inside it. So what's the remedy for this? Um, the social democratic remedy has always been to institute publicly funded pit savers, as it were, lifeguards, people who save those who end up in pits. So you have publicly funded free universal health, education, uh, provision of food, energy, clothing, and so on. Um, the revolutionary remedy has always been to get rid of pits altogether and by abolishing or fully removing, completely removing the inequality that tends to reproduce pit-like relationships, that is the division between capital and labor. So whatever you think about each of these remedies, it is pretty clear that recent policies followed in the United Kingdom, for example, by consecutive governments, either Tory, Lib Dem coalition, or Labour, um, has been to deepen and enlarge the pit for the vast majority of people. Privatization, uh, public sector cuts, wage squeeze, all these things have made um, people more exploitable and more liable to being taken advantage of by their capitalist masters. And I think this is amply demonstrated by recent developments in, in the university sector, in the school sector, in the NHS. And uh, to cut a long story short, I think theory is partly there to help us discover the truth, but it's also there to be used as a weapon to fight oppression inequality and exploitation. And this is one of the things that uh, we're going to try to do today, I think. Thank you. So that was stage one, right? We have the two accounts of exploitation, Hillel's liberal account, Nicholas's domination vulnerability-based account. Stage two is comment on the respectively other accounts. So I think, Hillel, you want to go first and say something on Nicholas's account? Um, so need, needless to say, I agree with Nick on some things, and in particular that uh, <clears throat> in trying to understand exploitation, vulnerability is a key concept. 
But I guess on this liberal model that I've been trying to develop, that vulnerability has a, a different meaning than it has for Nick's type of theory. Vulnerability on my theory is um, relative, it's a, a relative concept that is um, in which the, the baseline point of comparison is how much better off that person, the vulnerable person, would have been if there hadn't been that prior injustice, that prior rights violation that I mentioned in, in my first talk. Um, so it's possible, on my theory, just to try to make it vividly clear, it's possible for Bill Gates to be exploited. Um, it's possible for Bill Gates to be exploited because Bill Gates could be going to sell his, um, his copy of uh, Karl Marx's Capital and um, someone who would have paid 200 pounds for it is waylaid unjustly on the way to the auction and consequently the highest bid winds up being only 150 pounds from someone who, who is at the auction. Bill Gates has been <coughs> exploited to the tune of 50 pounds in that example. Now, of course, we're not going to be very uh, worried if Bill Gates gets exploited a little bit from time to time, and we are going to be much more worried about the exploitation of the kind of um, let's say transactors that, that Nick was talking about even though the extent to which they're exploited might be actually in, in, in terms of money might be far less than the extent to which Bill Gates or others like him could be exploited so we need to have some other some conception of why we care more about the exploitees that Nick points to than uh, some of, at least some of the exploitees that my theory would uh, count as exploitees. But that fact that we need to have some account of why we care more about the one type than the other doesn't in any way negate or take away from the fact that both count as exploitees on this, that is, victims of exploitation, on this liberal model of exploitation. On the liberal model, you're exploited if you get less than you would have got in, just to put it very broadly, in a, in a completely just world. I won't try to respond to Hillel because I think my criticism of him might be more productive. So one of the things that Hillel seems to be trying to say is that vulnerability somehow can be incorporated into or made sense of in his account, his rights-based account. Now, I'm going to tr try to explain why this is not possible. In fact, I'm going to try to say why, in my opinion, Hillel's account of exploitation is 
not, it, it's untenable. So here's three, three reasons. I could keep going on for a whole night, but this, shouldn't ha- this won't happen, can't happen. So first of all, Hillel thinks that if I punch Gabriel, who would have bid for Hillel's goods, thereby getting the goods from Hillel for a, for a price lower than if I hadn't punched Gabriel, I thereby exploit Hillel. It sounds quite complicated, but that's what Hillel thinks. It's a tri- exploitation is a trilateral relation. It's a relation between me, the puncher, Gabriel, the punched, uh, and uh, Hillel, who wants to sell a good or a commodity or whatever. Now, the first thing to notice about uh, Hillel's account here is that it seems to totally mislocate the wrong. So the problem when you exploit someone is not the punching, is the exploiting. That is, insofar as we're interested in exploitation or wrongful exploitation, what matters is that we exploit someone, not that someone was punched. Now, I'm not saying that it's not bad to punch Gabriel. Uh, but, um, but insofar as we're interested in exploitation, what's wrong about me uh, exploiting Hillel is me exploiting Hillel rather than me punching Gabriel. Now, that's, so the trilateral account, I think, is totally wrong-headed. But there's more problems, and these problems do not only afflict Hillel's account, they afflict every liberal theory of exploitation. And that's the connection that any and every liberal theory must establish between uh, exploitation on the one hand and rights or distributive justice and injustice on the other. So go back to the pit case. B is in the pit, I'm above him, I offer him uh, a sweatshop, I give him a sweatshop offer, I say to him, work for me for the rest, in order to get you out, I'm gonna, you're going to have to work for me for, for 10 years, for a euro a day. Now, uh, this is a two-person case, uh, so the trilateralism is, is redundant in this case. But what's more important is that it does not matter how B ended up in the pit, it does not matter if B ended up in the pit through a violation of his rights. It does not matter if B ended up in the pit with or without uh, a distributive injustice at any stage of the transactions. All that matters is that B finds himself in the pit and that it is despicable of me to get him out, to, rather to offer to get him out for a million euros when it would have been extremely easy to throw the rope and get him out. Rights and rights violations are not and cannot be necessary conditions for wrongful exploitation. And finally, let me just point to the connection, the important connection between vulnerability on the one hand and exploitation on the other, just to outline why distributive injustice accounts or rights-based views simply can't make sense of that. So we normally think that exploiting children by exploiting child labor, um, rather, exploiting, yeah, exploiting children by exploiting their labor is worse 
than exploiting grown-ups by exploiting grown-up labor. We normally think that's more wrongful, other things equal. But how can a rights-based view or a distributive injustice view make sense of this claim? The answer is it cannot. Rights violations are the same whether you're a grown-up or whether you're a child. Distributive injustice, injustice in the distribution of the means of production or whatever it is we're interested in, is the same and matters equally whether you're a child or you're a grown-up. But there is a reason why we think exploitation of children is worse than exploitation of grown-ups, namely that children are supremely vulnerable beings. Think of uh, uh, Fagin in Oliver Twist, the despicable representation of him. So it is important to point out that liberal views do not and cannot make sense of this grading. I could keep going on, but I won't. Uh, maybe, maybe you should... So, thank you very much. That completes stage two. We've heard both sides. Stage three now is get the audience in, get ready for your questions. There'll be a microphone passed around, so I think make sure to speak into the microphone. It's probably good once you've been identified, maybe stand up so people know where exactly to pass um, the microphone. Um, so, Joe, maybe you go first. So thank you very much for the talk. I'm Jim Azor. I'm in the philosophy department. Um, so I guess I, I really like the pit example because I think it, it really is very much uh, our, touches on our intuitions of exploitation. So um, I, I think a one pit example for each of you causes problems, right? So I'll start with Hillel, and I think you raised this pit example where the person, through no injustice, right, they took some risk that they're responsible for, whatever, whatever your conception of justice, they end up in the pit, there's no injustice, and there's an offer of a sweatshop labor offer. Um, so I was hoping that you would actually respond to that uh, example when there is no injustice. Um, but also for Nick, the, 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 um, there's an example where the person's in the pit, but I make them a reasonable offer to get them out of the pit. Right? So I say, uh, you know, it costs me something to rescue them. And I say, okay, I'll rescue you. And let's say it costs me 100 pounds to rescue them. And I say, I'll rescue you for 110 pounds. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm, I'm benefiting. I wouldn't otherwise get that 10 pounds. I'm benefiting from their vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't, I don't find that particularly exploitative. So thanks. Uh, yes, I, I should have said something about B in the pit um, before. Uh, so in your uh, example, we're saying that B ends up in the pit through no injustice. That means of the three types of cause of something happening, uh, or three relevant types of cause, namely caused by someone else, caused by Mother Nature or caused by oneself. I'm going to take it for the moment that we're talking about B ending up in the pit due to his own fault. Negligence, recklessness, stuff like that. We could even imagine that A, the, the prospective rescuer, had warned him beforehand that uh, he shouldn't be digging a pit there or shouldn't hang around there. This is, yeah. It's clear that there's no injustice here. B cannot violate, nobody can violate their own rights, so there's no injustice. In which case, I don't see that 
A's uh, rescue offer, pricey as it is, is an exploitation. It, I think what this really hangs on is how closely we want to link the idea of exploitation to the idea of injustice. We can still find all kinds of grounds, moral grounds, for criticizing um, A's, what I'll call, extortionate offer. But I would balk at calling it unjust and uh, potentially exploitative. Um. So you don't think, for example, that in, in the case where the guy digs himself in, the offer is still exploitative? If, 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 I, if you find yourself in the pit, yeah. you, you dig yourself in the pit, and I come over and say, pay, pay up, pay a million, that isn't an exploitative offer. That's right. Um, okay, so by way of response to your question, uh, what's very important here is to sort out the baselines, the relevant, what the relevant baselines are. So exploitation necessarily, necessarily um, implies benefiting at someone's expense. But what benefiting is, we have to, to figure out. So uh, we have to figure out what the relevant baseline vis-a-vis which uh, someone benefits is. Um, so if you have a drowning child in the sea, for instance, and you say, uh, or, or in a lake, and you, you, you say, I'm going to rescue you, but you have to pay me for the cost of my expensive shoes. Now, I have no problem saying that this is an exploitative offer, even though it costs you something. Even though it costs you your expensive shoes, um, you're still exploiting the kid. Uh, but there's another uh, possibility open to me, which is to say that you're actually not benefiting. So if the relevant baseline is simply um, simply the um, uh, your level, your present level of well-being, what you get after the child pays for for the shoes is entails no difference for you in terms of your well-being, such that, such that you do not benefit from uh, that instrumentalization of that vulnerability. What about the reasonable problem? Right? I gave the example of you made the 10-pound I think that's exploitative. I think, yeah. Um. Uh, Mike? Thanks. I'm uh, Mike Atsuka in the philosophy department. <clears throat> follow up, I'd like to follow up a bit on Joe's point. So um, it seems that the notion of exploitation, Hillel, that you're working with is fairly detached from sort of ordinary understandings of the concept, which I think track the idea of taking advantage of someone else's vulnerability, much closer to Nicholas's account. And that's what we would say of the person who offers to remove this person from the pit, who's fallen in the pit just because of his carelessness, when he says, I'll do that, I'll I'll reach down and and give you my hand to let you out of the pit if you pay me a million euros, taking advantage of the person's vulnerability. By contrast, the Bill Gates case, 
doesn't seem exploitative, mainly because, well, Bill Gates isn't vulnerable. He, he doesn't have to sell his copy of uh, Das Kapital, implausibly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, uh, but but uh, he, he freely, even though he doesn't have to do this, decides to sell it, and it just so happens that he would have got a higher price. I don't really see how that makes it makes sense to call that exploitative, given sort of ordinary understandings of what we mean by exploitation. And just one thing to say about Nicholas's account, Nicholas ties exploitation with servility. We can think of cases of exploitation which don't seem to involve servility at all, though. So uh, cases in which what the person extracts from someone else is just that what the exploiter extracts from the exploiter is just that person's wealth, not labor. We can imagine that it's, it's done very impersonally through sort of internet transactions where the, the one party is able to um, make an offer which the other party can't refuse because of that other party's vulnerability, but perhaps there's no possibility of being able to extract anything except for a large amount of wealth of that other person through an internet Transaction here it seems there's really no prospect for servility, but it still seems ex- ex- exploitative. Okay. Um, yeah, as uh, I mean, one thing is, as I said before, it depends how tightly you think the concept of exploitation is tied to the concept of injustice and in turn how tightly injustice is tied to the concept of rights. I think that, that latter connection is, is pretty tight. And I'd, I'd want to think of the former one as equally, well, pretty strong in any event. If the problem, the problem with seeing, A, the rescuer who wants to charge a million pounds for something as... Um, being an exploiter, regardless of how B got into that, uh, regardless of how B became vulnerable, that is, even if B made himself vulnerable, um, is that it, it can actually, under certain, we'd have to fill in more of a story, but it can actually mean that B exploits A. And in the following way, let's suppose that... Um, uh, B knows that if he goes, whatever, um, caving in a certain area, there's a, a real danger that he'll fall into a pit and will need rescuing. If we have a policy that sets an absolute ceiling on re- what rescuers can charge... <clears throat> And further designates who would be who would carry a legal obligation to be a rescuer, namely someone who's nearby at the time that the person becomes vulnerable. Then it looks like B can think, well, I'd like to do this caving, but if there were a, if I was going to have to pay a million, but if I became vulnerable and needed to pay a million pounds, I'd rather not do it. Since, however, the most they're allowed to charge me is 100 pounds, I'm going to do this. And that means any nearby A is vulnerable to being, I'd want to say, exploited by B. Yeah. 
Um, so I think it, in the end, I think the chief difference between us is that it matters how, it matters on my model how you became vulnerable. If, if your vulnerability is self-inflicted, then certainly however extortionate the price is to, char to rescue you from that situation, um, I wouldn't want to say that it's an unjust price. And because I think injustice and exploitation kind of go hand in hand, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to say it's exploitative. What about self-enslavement? Sorry? What about someone who voluntarily enslaves himself to someone else? Um, and such, such that uh, someone, such that the, the, the person to whom they're enslaved uh, can extract a benefit from them at will. Is that not exploitative? It, 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 someone it, it voluntarily enslaves yes, themselves. That's right. I'd have to say it's not exploitative. I mean, we would. Why would you want to say it is exploitative? Well, then what is exploitative? When, only, only transactions that occur against the background of what? Of injustice in distribution? Sure. If, if this, uh, I mean, yeah, which gives me an opportunity to correct you on one small mm -hmm. bit of your description of my theory. I used to think in the 1984 article, I called it um, a trilateral theory. It's... Trilateralism isn't relevant here. What's, what's relevant is that there are two transactions, a rights violation followed by an exploitation. The, the person whose rights uh, are previously violated could be a third party, but it needn't be. It could be the victim of the exploitation herself. So uh -huh. what's crucial here are the two transactions, not right. the three parties. Okay, so if to take your uh, self-enslavement example, if I was um, uh, robbed, just to take a simple example, of my just belongings, <clears throat> then um, I would become much more vulnerable, and depending on you know, what, what it is that I need this cash for, or this, uh, either just to save my life, or to save my daughter's life who needs a very expensive bit of surgery or something like that, I self-enslave myself, then of course I'm being exploited, because I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been robbed beforehand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if there's no such preceding injustice, and I self-enslave myself for some presumably a benefit additional to those that I could normally expect, mm -hmm. then, yeah, I don't think it's unjust. Which has the upshot, of course, that uh, the least vulnerable people might end up being the most exploited ones. You mentioned the notion of vulnerability, but you just pay lip service to it. All you care about is rights in this case. So the, the Bill Gateses of the world, if they own what they own by, by right, then... Uh, then they're going to be the ones who get exploited, whether they're vulnerable or not. They will be being exploited mm -hmm. if, due to some injustice that's either occurred to them or to some third yeah, party, mean, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they receive less in exchange for whatever they're exchanging. 
just to answer the, Mike's question, so I mentioned servility as a criterion for what might count as domination. I don't think servility is a necessary condition for exploitation, but I do think it's one of the criteria that have to be taken into account We're trying to, when trying to figure out and assign uh, agents who are dominated and in virtue of, who, of which domination uh, exploitation occurs. So I don't think servility is a necessary condition, but I do think uh, domination is a necessary condition for exploitation. So question in the very back on that side. Yeah. It seems that the person who fell into the pit, if it's at no fault of his own, has a certain right to be saved by a person who can save him at little cost of his own, and that person who can save him has a duty of beneficence, and that duty of beneficence could have a correlative right in the part of the person who fell into the pit. So if you accept that kind of conception of rights, where we have a right to be saved when someone else can provide us that saving at very little cost, then can we say that the two accounts are consistent with each other? Because vulnerability can be an indication that other people have a duty of beneficence to you and that you do have, in fact, this right to be saved. And any profit above that would be exploitative. If, if you, I'm not sure I heard your whole question, but if you have a right to be saved, is that, yeah, if you have a right to be saved, then of course, the, if B has a right to be saved, then A must save him or her, um, presumably free of charge. Do you want to say something Um... No, I pass. And uh, Christian is the next. Thanks. Christian List in the government and philosophy departments. I've got a question for Niklas. Um, you mentioned um, a close relationship between the concept of um, exploitation and the concept of domination. And I'd like to ask you to expand a little bit on this. It seems to me that on at least one very influential understanding of domination, namely Philip Pettit's Republican understanding, those two concepts do come somewhat apart. So, so on that understanding of domination, domination is the possibility of arbitrary interference. So, for example, a factory owner um, dominates uh, or can dominate uh, the workers in the factory if it is possible for the factory owner to arbitrarily interfere. Similarly, a ruler of a country or um, political unit can dominate um, the population if, if the ruler has the possibility of arbitrarily interfering. But, I mean, as people um, recognize um, a relationship of domination in that sense, the mere possibility of arbitrary interference uh, is fully compatible with the non-exercise of that interference. So, so there can in principle be um, a ruler or a factory owner who due to the you know, background situation uh, is able to dominate um, the uh, workers um, but doesn't actually do so. So this would be the possibility of a benevolent uh, factory owner or, or a benevolent uh, ruler. Um, so if we accept that account, um, domination um, is not quite the same as exploitation because you could have domination and yet 
no exercise of actual interference or, or, or actual exploitation. And so that's why I, I'm inviting you to um, elaborate a little bit on what notion of uh, domination um, you have in mind or how you would like to link mm. domination and exploitation. Uh, so I don't think... I think there are instances of domination, people dominating others where they do not exploit, namely cases where, uh, you know, uh, you exploit, you, you dominate with other, without obtaining a benefit. Exploitation requires that you benefit somehow. Um, now, I think there's a difference between um, taking advantage of a power you have over someone and exercising that power. And um, so the, the, the proverbial playground bully uh, might take advantage of the power he has over other children in the playground when they do what he likes without actually exercising that power, without exercising his power to beat them, for instance. Um, so I think these are still instances of domination. Um, that is, even when you um, take advantage of the power you have over other people or your power to arbitrarily interfere with their lives, you're taking advantage of that power even though you're not exercising it. And so um, in these cases, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that the playground bully also exploits if he extracts a benefit from the other children, if he gets their candy or something like that. Um, now, the relevant notion of domination at play here does have a component of power, uh, and it also has a component of hierarchy. So, as I understand it, domination is a relationship between an overdog and an underdog, as it were, that arises in virtue of the overdog's possession of a power over the underdog. And it is in virtue of that hierarchy that uh, exploitation becomes possible. Gentlemen, fourth row, yeah. Uh, thank you. This is just first a, a, a clarification. When uh, uh, Professor Steiner, when you um, talk about exploitation in the Bill Gates example, wouldn't you say that really what is exploited here is, is the rights violation itself, rather than Bill Gates? So a right has been, you know, the, the person who would have paid market value for the capital is prevented from doing so. And so there's a, a rights violation taking place outside the room, and it's that violation that is exploited rather than Bill Gates. Isn't that, isn't that the case, just in, in terms of logic? So Bill Gates actually doesn't enter your kind of analysis, really. And that's, that's the first kind of point of clarification. I was wondering whether you could say something about that. The second one, just as I can exploit a violation of rights, I was wondering whether you would also say that you can exploit rights themselves. I mean, tax avoidance would be an example where people very cleverly exploit a tax regime uh, for their own benefit at the expense of others. But there is no violation of a right taking place. So is it just that... A rights violation, or could a sort of a right itself also be equally exploited? So, um, again, the, the the issue is whether uh, we want to connect 
or how much we want to see there being a connection between the concept of exploitation and that of injustice. Um, so when it comes to the idea of exploiting a tax regime, we need to know first whether that tax regime is itself a just one or not. Obviously, there are many possible tax regimes, um, and just tax regimes are a subset, probably a very small subset, of those possible ones. Um, if, if we exploit a just tax regime, then I think we're using the concept of exploitation in, in the way that I'm suggesting, with a tight connection to injustice. Um, if we exploit an unjust tax regime, then I think we're using the concept of exploit in a more uh, purely descriptive sense. Uh, it depends what, the, well, presumably the object of the exploitation is simply self to, to, to gain some money for oneself that otherwise we wouldn't have. So it, I think when we talk about exploiting an unjust tax regime, we're using the word exploit in the sense that I would say that I exploit a mineral deposit in a certain territory or something, make use of, take advantage of the fact that it's there, as it were, um, with no necessary normative moral content to that, to that use of the concept of exploitation. So then the to exploit justifiably, you have to assume it's an unjust tax regime, and then it's okay. Everybody could exploit, sorry? So, so if, if, if I sort of say, well, the tax regime is unjust, yeah. and then it's okay to do that, and then it's, you know, it's, then it's not exploitation in a normative sense. I, th I think it depends on... <clears throat> It depends on the ways in which the tax regime is unjust and the ways in which it's exploited if they just aggravate the injustice um, by adding to it, but as it were, increasing the uh, what I'll call the maldistribution of resources or wealth, um, then uh, no, it's not okay. Obviously, there, there are degrees. I think we all think of injustice as coming in degrees, however difficult it would be to propose a very precise metric for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, if we think that a certain distribution of wealth is unjust and that a tax regime supports that injustice and it's still an open question as to whether exploiting that tax regime is going to make the injustice even worse or at least partly offset some of that injustice. Empirical question. Do you want to say something on tax uh, Just a pedantic point, but which might help clarify what's going on here. So there's a difference between exploiting things and resources and tables and chairs and exploiting people. And what we're concerned with here is exploitation of person by, by person. So whether people are exploited might depend on whether you exploit uh, the system, but that's a derivative sense. So what Hillel is saying, I suppose, is simply that, uh, you know, exploiting uh, a tax system 
might be wrongful if it leads to exploitation of person by person, because that's unjust, but it might not, right? Yeah. Question over here in the third row. Thanks. Uh, uh, my name's Stuart. I'm in the uh, philosophy department here as a PhD student. Um, there seems a sense of exploitation which is about asymmetric information. So one side of the transaction knows it's a lemon or knows it's a Picasso rather than the thing in from the attic. Uh, in either of your theories, can you give an account of why asymmetric information is important and that exploitation can exist where it, where it, where it is the case? Um, well, vis-a-vis, uh, uh, I think, uh, well, it's relatively easy to generate uh, exploitation of person by person by withholding information or by manipulating people into doing things. Uh, but what I'm interested in, and, and that's, that's one way in which you can either use or take advantage of their vulnerabilities or indeed extort them by making them vulnerable by withholding information, giving false information, uh, or simply holding uh, asymmetric information. But what I'm interested in is how a rights-based account, as opposed to the vulnerability-based account, can, if it can, make sense of that. Yeah, no, that's a, a really interesting question, and it's it's not clear to me that withholding information or um, uh, offering misleading information is necessarily ex- uh, well is necessarily unjust, nor therefore that the transaction that might follow on the back of that. Um, withholding or that, that misleading, what I'll call misleading, um, is itself an exploitation. I did, a large part of this depends on whether we think that um, in a transaction, each party necessarily owes the other party true information, or at least whatever true information they're in possession of. Honest, let's say honest information, because people can be honestly mistaken. Um, Yeah, so the question is whether each transactor owes that as a matter of right, or whether that is itself a right to be contracted, say. Um, and I've never, I think, seen a good account of uh, distributive justice that says there is a kind of basic right that each person be honest in their dealings with other people. That, um, much as we would like them to be and criticize them for mor- morally for not being, I'm not clear that that's a requirement of justice, an uncontracted right to honesty. So if I appropriate all, I I remove all your property by manipulating you, does that not violate a right of yours? I think we probably need some specification of the, the manipulation involved in order to 
I so I say, I say. Uh, if uh, you give me all your your property, I'm gonna uh, kiss you, or yeah, whatever. Threat or offer? Yeah, for some people it's a threat. For some people it's an offer. Many women say said to me it's a it's a threat. But um, a threat or an offer? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but so in this case there seems to be something wrong. But but is a right violated? It's not obvious. If I then hand over, you say that, and I hand over my property, um, and what you're saying, you don't deliver? Yeah, I don't deliver the kids. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't readily see a rights violation going on there. Right, Okay. So none of these cases, according to you, can be exploitative. For example, the cases where I just appropriate all of your stuff through manipulative means, uh, leaving you with nothing. Um, none of these cases are, for you, exploitative because they involve a voluntary waiving of a right or something like that. And uh, there's been no preceding injustice. Yeah, right. And, uh, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it might be very wrong, but not unjust, and therefore not exploitative. Right, okay. So it might be wrong. What's the difference between so wrong versus unjust? What's, what's going on? Ah, here? excellent, excellent point. Um, uh, where to start on this? Um, it, it's the view, or a view that I sometimes associate with uh, right-wing libertarianism that rights exhaust the whole of morality. That if some, some action is not a violation of someone's rights, then it's got to be morally okay. This is not a view that I, or I think most people, subscribe to. Um, and that there are ways of doing morally wrong things that, uh, or let me put it more precisely, this, there are ways of exercising your rights that are morally wrong. Ways of exercising your moral rights that are morally wrong. So, um, yeah, just uh, if you have a right to a certain amount of money and um, you see some needy person in the street and we'll, we'll suppose that you're entitled justly to your money and they're not entitled to it uh, they don't have a right to it but it would be very morally wrong not to give them some of your money the very last row on the, on the right on behind Um, hello, gentlemen. Yeah, um, good evening. My name's Will. I specialise in the history and the history of art. And um, I can give you a, a, a true um, case of where the hunter became the hunted and B became A and A became B. Because in the 1340s, the, the, plague, the Black Plague spread from Asia across Europe and it landed here in England in 1350. Up till then, men had been in serfdom and bondage, and they were more or less owned by the lords, barons, and farmers. After the plague wiped out half the population, 
then the serfs had the upper hand because they could ask for three times their wages. And that, in fact, they were given them and often brought out of bondage and made free men. This is the true case of where A became B. Sorry, could you just give me that? So he's uh, referring to some historical case where there was a role reversal and where the exploited became the exploiters and vice versa in the 14th century as a consequence of the plague. Right. So what... Um, so is the question what should be done about this? Or Yes, the, the point I'm making is that... Yeah, I mean, that's... that's you know, I, I think historically there, there are a number of cases where the exploit, yes. where exploitees, the, exactly. the exploited, have Became become exploiters, themselves. not necessarily yes, of the they people who... They exploited the circumstances, yeah. but were they any different? They weren't any different to the circumstances they found themselves prior to that. So I'm just saying that, really, it doesn't have to be a big globalized industry or right. Bill Gates. When we get the ch ordinary people, everyday people get the chance, you know, and that's a true instance. Sure. I mean, we might suppose that a lot of um, European colonization of uh, third world countries, North America, Uh, and so on, was done by people who, in their homeland, were amongst the exploited and who then migrated to these <coughs> other continents and became exploiters. Next question is two rows further in, the gentleman next to the pillow. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, just to come back to the beginning and the core concepts of this debate, which I think were um, exploitation, power, and vulnerability. Um, I've just been chewing this around, and I'm wondering whether you would see any significant change if we reposition the concept of vulnerability as the concept of powerlessness. Some people might argue that they're virtually the same. Others might say, well, if you are powerless, you um, can actually turn the situation on its head, as was just suggested by the 14th century plague. Um, if we talk about vulnerability, it is the possible occurrence of the potential or hypothetical occurrence of something, whereas if you are powerless, you are powerless now. And I would take as an example of this uh, someone who lived in Somerset and was affected by the floods, to which they were vulnerable, but they are not necessarily powerless. Yeah, I think this is a great question. Um, Vulnerability, as I understand it, is dispositional. It, it expresses a disposition of something or a liability to being something happening to you or to being harmed by something. Um, powerlessness is not a dispositional in the sense that it implies the total absence of 
some relevant disposition, it seems to me. Maybe I'm mistaken about that. Um, so in my view, vulnerability is closer and should be conceived closer to dependence rather than to powerlessness. But having said that, there is perhaps a conception of powerlessness that's relational. That is, that, doesn't, that isn't chiefly concerned with how much absolute power you might have, but rather with how much power you have relative to other people, in which case, in which case um, I'd be perfectly happy to accept that it is the obverse of vulnerability, what I called social vulnerability in the beginning, such that it expresses a relation between people and a thing or a liability to harm. Yeah, powerlessness is precisely, I think, um, part of the <clears throat> sort of constellation of concepts that this uh, very meager classical liberal conception of uh, exploitation tends not to grapple with. Um, the only kinds of powers that it recognizes are the ones that lawyers recognize, where you mean po by power, what Hofeld meant by power, which is um, a legal position uh, that enables you to change the legal relations of others and possibly yourself as well. Um, but I think in that sense, in that kind of normative sense of power, um, People who only slaves are powerless, literally power, lacking completely in any powers. Um, anyone who has, uh, I don't know, the rights to sell their labor, their laboring ability, has powers of some kind, legal powers. I think that's not the kind of powers or powerlessness that you were referring to. I think it was more what Nick addressed. I was just thinking of the guy in the pit. Sorry? The, the, the guy in the pit. pit. The guy in the pit, the pit is powerless. Uh, well, it depends on whether he has a right to be rescued. If he has a right to be rescued, then he's got, on my understanding of rights, then he's got powers to impose a duty, by, by impose I mean insist that others have a duty, A has a duty to do that rescue. Um, but in terms of uh, his, uh, as it were, more, his powers understood in a more sociological way, he's fairly powerless. It depends on you know, what he can still do in the pit, I suppose. Um, not much. But I won't speculate. Yeah. <laughs> he might not be totally powerless. Um, yeah. yeah. We have a question over here in the fourth row, blue shirt and bearded. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering how much we're talking about intent of the person actually doing the exploitation, because a lot of what I've been hearing is um, well, basically, I think the intent makes it the exploitation. So if I do something with the intent 
of taking advantage of someone else, then I'm exploiting. And I can exploit somebody who's rich, I can exploit somebody who's poor, I can exploit anyone if that is my intention. And I was also just wondering how the vulnerability plays in, because you can be made vulnerable, but you can also make yourself vulnerable. So let's say, for instance, you're in a war-torn country that you need to escape, but you have nowhere legal that you can go. You might have to flee. Then you become an illegal. And you might put yourself into a vulnerable situation where you take a job as an illegal for a much you know, lesser uh, amount of money than a legal person would. And then you make yourself even more vulnerable. So I just also wonder how that kind of plays into each other and if that still counts as exploitation or not, because I think it does. Mm. And it's about the choices that you have and that are available to you, and they are limited in some situations. Um, yeah, well, vis-a-vis -vis the intentionality, intention claim, I don't think uh, you need to intend to exploit in order to exploit. If uh, the guy finds himself in a pit and um, for whatever reason you see him in the pit and you think it's an eccentric millionaire who dug himself into the pit uh, and you say, pay me a million for me to get you out, you're exploiting, but perhaps you don't intend it. Perhaps you thought it was Bill Gates. Perhaps you thought it's someone who wants to pay a million pounds in return for being rescued. I don't think it's uh, intending to, to exploit is a necessary condition for exploiting. Um, I also think, like you, that self-inflicted vulnerability can be a ground for exploitation. Again, take the pit case, or take an even more fancy case where you're at the top of a huge vanilla ice cream, and you lick all of the vanilla, and you end up at the bottom of the cone, you know, a huge vanilla cone, vanilla ice cream cone, and you lick all of the vanilla, and you end up at the bottom of the cone. Then A can come over and say, oh, look, you know, you, you did it. You did that to yourself. It's still exploitative, in my view, to say, pay a million euros for me to get you out. And finally, vis-a-vis -vis choices, um, there's a difference between... Uh, um, self-inflicted vulnerability and other choices and choices that you might make that lead to you being vulnerable. In my opinion, choice does have a role to play, but not vis-a-vis -vis exploitation. Exploitation uh, can occur whether you chose to, 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 to make yourself vulnerable or not. Um. Yeah, I, uh, an important point that I agree with Nick on is that um, I don't think that intention is a necessary condition for being an exploiter. But that view has been challenged but in a very good thesis by someone who's sitting here in the front row, uh, Ben Ferguson, who, who believes that to be an exploiter, for a transaction to be exploitative, the exploiter has to have an awareness of uh, the fact that he or she is benefiting by virtue of the vulnerability of the, whoever they're transacting with. So I think we do agree, Nick and I, that um, you can exploit people without intending to do so. I may, I may exploit someone without knowing that um, their uh, say their reservation price is as low as it is because they suffered some injustice just before they came into the auction or something of that kind. 
I could still be exploiting them. Ben, you want to talk about your thesis? <laughs> you want to defend it now? Uh, say one thing. Yeah. Um, one thing that Maybe wait for the microphone and then... So one thing that I might disagree with these two about is I might call these kinds of transactions unfair transactions, but maybe not exploitative transactions. And an analogy here, although this isn't a case of exploitation, but it's an analogy. If Nick and I go to dinner and we decide to split the bill according to our income, and he earns twice as much as me, so he's going to pay two-thirds of the dinner and I'm going to pay one-third of the dinner. That's what we agree would be fair. But we make a mathematical mistake, and we split the bill differently than that. We didn't intend to do that, but the transaction would be unfair by something that we agreed to do. But if Nick lies about his income so as to not have to pay as much, then that seems to be the kind of wrongdoing that might be involved in things like we call exploitation. So that would be one argument for bringing in attitudes like intentionality to exploitation. And we might reserve unfairness for the kinds of transactions that Hillel and Nicholas want to talk about. You just hand the microphone to Laura, who's sitting right behind you. Thank you. So I have a general question, and it might go back to something that uh, Mike asked in the beginning. The general question is, what do you think are desiderata on a good account of exploitation? So what should a good account of exploitation do? Should it be passivonia? Should it match our intuitions? And I'm asking this because Hillel uh, several times mentioned in answer to questions. Well, it depends on how closely you want to align justice and exploitation. And I was wondering... Yes, but why would you want to align justice and exploitation so closely? And I guess that that then leads back to the question, what are desiderata on a good account of exploitation? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. um, I don't know that I have a a really good reason for thinking that they're closely aligned. Um, My intuition on this is simply that they're both... that, that. Justice is concerned with distribution, and so is exploitation. When we think when someone is exploited, um, then uh, yeah, the distribution of wealth or whatever it is that's being exchanged uh, in that pair of persons or in society more generally is not what it should be. Um, and justice seems to be particularly concerned with distribution. Certainly that seems to be the uh, common presumption of Rawls, Nozick, Dworkin, I mean, whoever, the lucky egalitarians. So that's a reason for seeing them as closely related, I think. Exploitation and uh, injustice are both about maldistribution in some way. Um, what other desiderata does... Well, one is, I mean, something that Ben raises in his thesis is uh, 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 that it shouldn't be the case, I think, that um, we have a, a concept of exploitation or a model of exploitation that makes it seem that almost every transaction in the world is in some way exploitative. That's too inclusive. So uh, it, exclusivity is an important desideratum. Um, 
and then, yeah, just covering the cases that we are certain. I mean, I think these, there's probably a trilemma in here, um, covering all the cases that we feel just in our guts are exploitative is a desideratum. Um, and my conjecture is that these three desiderata pull against each other. Yeah, well, just by way of response to Laura, but also to Hillel, I think there are some intuitions, very strong intuitions we have about exploitation, and I take it that they're somehow connected with vulnerability. Um, and this is one of the major things that we should be trying to do, I, I think, is trying to systematize these intuitions uh, by tying them to uh, real-world concerns that we have, like uh, sweatshops and, and uh, prostitution and uh, guest workers and things like uh, child labor. And it seems to me that all these things count in favor of a non-rights-based view or a just a distributive injustice view, and rather in favor of, one, of a view that, that puts uh, vulnerability at its heart. And I would like to know perhaps whether, what Hillel thinks about the case of of um, exploitation of child labor. How do you make? How how can we make sense of the of the different of the difference uh, and different strength of the intuitions that we have vis-a-vis exploitation of the labor of grown-ups and exploitation of the labor of children, if yeah. not through some vulnerability-based account and not not a rights one? Yeah. Um, Different theories of justice have um, either explicitly or by implication different views of what the rights, what rights, uh, I'll say, pertain to children. So some theories of rights of justice don't give children rights per se. Um, This is broadly true of any kind of theory that embraces what's called the will theory of of, uh, of rights. whereby you can be a right holder only if you're capable of exercising choice. So if we're talking about children who are below the age of consent or judged to be incapable of consent, they wouldn't, on any theory of justice employing will theory rights, they wouldn't have rights. Others would have rights with respect to them, The problem is, for those theories, I suspect, that those children who are made to labor are probably being made to do so by their custodians, by the people who have rights with respect to them. And then it's going to be problematic to see their being made to labor as unjust and Again, again, if you believe there's a tight conceptual link between injustice and exploitation, then it's going to be hard to see that as exploitative. If you think children do have rights, even when they are themselves incapable of exercising them because they're minors, then I think you can see their being as a kind of conscripted into laboring, not, not as exploitation, but as sheer robbery much more direct form of injustice. It's not as in my model of exploitation that the robbery precedes the exploitative transaction. Mm -hmm. Forcing someone to labor against violating their rights 
is just straightforward injustice. It's not exploitation. It's slavery. I think we have time for one final question. Unfortunately, only one final question. And maybe you use your answer to say final things you wanted to say on the debate. So you get the final question. Um, hello. I would like to ask two questions, actually, one for each of the speakers. So it seems to me that the approach of your approach of exploitation is very closely related to market imperfection. So could there be exploitation with perfect markets? And this could be an argument against government intervention because you see my point. And then for, for Nicholas, I was thinking of an island where there is a doctor and um, a builder. And in the morning, the builder is sick, so he's vulnerable and he needs the doctor, so he has to pay him with his fruit. And then in the afternoon, it starts raining, so the doctor needs the builder to build him a tent, and then he has to pay back the fruit. Are in the morning is one exploiting the other, in the afternoon, the other way around, but throughout the day, there's no exploitation. Hmm. So, um, by imperfect markets, you mean uh, imperfectly competitive markets. Is that the thought? Yeah. So, um, briefly, uh, my answer would be, I mean, just to take the paradigm case of a, a monopolistic market, um, that there is not necessarily exploitation going on there. It depends how the monopoly came about. If it came about through rights violation, you know, the, the monopolist um, I don't know, burning down the factories of all his competitors, um, then, yeah, then, then it's likely that whatever transactions he enters into uh, are going to be uh, exploitative. But if instead of burning down all his competitors and turning what was a reasonably perfectly competitive market into a, a very imperfectly competitive one, he did it just by buying them out, um, then I don't think that whatever transactions he then engages in as a monopolist can count. Well, they certainly on my model can't count as exploitative. Um, the builder and the doctor, I think we need to know a bit more about the example. Um, if there is reason to think that um, the builder has power of the doctor and vice versa, then uh, that wouldn't rule out the possibility that uh, one is exploiting one in the one is exploiting the other in the morning, and the other guy is exploiting the other in the afternoon. But you know, we need to know more about the situation, about the nature of the power that each one has, and about. And we also know some some things about counterfactuals. What would have happened if one guy hadn't doctored, the other, the other guy hadn't built, and so on. But I, I don't think it's implausible to say that one exploits one in the morning and the other one exploits one in the afternoon. And if, if you sum up in the day? Well, if you sum up, then, yeah, I suppose your point is simply that uh, there is no net benefit for, for anyone. But that just... But, but, that just turns on whether uh, on how you sum up the benefits um, and what the relevant baselines are. Um, 
And that's one thing we didn't touch upon, but it's, it's pretty important to know what the relevant baselines are. It's not always... So if, some, if a vulnerable kid, kid is, is drowning, it's not obvious that the relevant baseline is your actual possession of... Um, that, that you, when you benefit, um, for example, by getting money from the drowning child, uh, you do that on the basis of... Um, rather, sorry, let me roll back. Sorry, I'm taking too much time. But, um, uh, the, in the drowning child case, um, we have to ask ourselves, let's say I ask, for a chi- I ask the child to pay me some money in order to, 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 to rescue it. What's important here is that the normal expectation, indeed the moral requirement, is that I save, I save the child even at some cost to myself. So the relevant baseline might not be me with my expensive shoes intact, but rather me with my expensive shoes destroyed, me incurring a cost. So all these things matter for the evaluation of whether exploitation does or does not occur. So um, eccentrics who dug themselves into pits, gigantic mountains of vanilla ice cream, um, Bill Gates reading Marx. I mean, what more could you want from a proper philosophy discussion? (laughs) On a more serious note, I think um, the discussion has well illustrated that the renewed interest in exploitation is is more than than warranted. So thank you very much to Yalel. Thank you very much to Nicholas. Thank you.